we're working on distinguishing essence and personality. And there's no better map of personality, nor how personality tries to get at essence and fails than the Enneagram. And our Enneagram type shows us how mechanical we are. Part of what makes essence important is that it gives us a real felt sense of our existence. The thing in us that can be present or not is essence. And so if we have a difficult time being present, we all do, it shows us how undeveloped essence is, but essence is not like the higher self. Essence is like what is, it's being. The Big Hormone Enneagram. Hi, I'm John Lukovich, uh, sexual self-pres for the five-wing 405A trifix. Hi, I'm David Gray, self-pres sexual 9 with 1974 trifix. What up? It's Emika. I'm an 8-wing 7, sexual self-pres with 854 fixes. Hi, I'm Nancy. I am a self-pres social 3-wing 4 with a 369 trifix. If you like our podcast, guys, make sure you go like and subscribe us on the Apple Podcast app. And if you really like us, you should definitely leave us a review. Hello, everybody. Uh, Welcome to Big Hormone Enneagram. Uh, In this call, I'm going to be talking about the origins of the Enneagram and the Enneagram as a process description as originally taught by Mr. Gurdjieff. I know that we're doing a series of interviews with types, and it's been hard to pin down the seven, so that'll be coming next week. In the meantime... I hope this is interesting, and I want to promote my um, online four-part Enneagram series with Maha Rose on Mondays between 2 to 4 p.m. You can find it on my Instagram uh, at Orpheus Osiris or uh, at maharose.com. First part's already been done, but I believe it's the first part's recorded, and it'll be good for both new people to the Enneagram as well as people who've had a lot of an Enneagram under their belts and want to understand the Enneagram, not just from the point of view of typology, from the point of view of how to use it for inner work. So enjoy. So we're going for the full esoteric dive today. Oh, man. guess so. It's funny um, today thinking like, okay, this is what we're going to talk about. I'm like, man, I don't know anything. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's exactly where I am all the time. Yeah, my my five wing is just like, uh, I was like, man, I don't know that bit of information. I don't know that either. How can I even talk about it? And then I I can realize that nobody gives a shit about the things I think. (laughs) For me, me, it's the nine thing where just, okay, laser in on this and then poof, it all scatters. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't scatter for me, but it's, you know, I think one of the things about uh, fiveness that at least healthy, not necessarily healthy, but not the like neurotic five is knowing what you don't know more, you know, like, like really seeing mm-hmm. all the gaps in your knowing. And it's like mm-hmm. on one hand that becomes overwhelm and like I'm incompetent, mm-hmm. but on the other hand, um, you know, it's like a lot of our critiques about people and teachers and stuff comes from like, just not knowing what they don't know. The Enneagram has such ancient roots that it's really easy to feel like ancient people were just sort of superstitious and stumbled on some good stuff, but they talked about it in a funny way. And then, you know, so now we can discard the primitive, you know, poor thinking of the past and just retain the like convenient linear mm. keywords and lists and, you know, that apply to the Enneagram or otherwise. Um, so the Enneagram 
was first introduced outside of esoteric inner work schools by this guy, George Gurdjieff, who um, grew up in a small town in modern day Armenia called Kars. And uh, it was along the Silk Road. And growing up, he saw all kinds of weird shit as people from different parts of the world, very different cultures and religions and backgrounds were traveling and trading along the Silk Road. And uh, this was like in the 1860s. And he saw all kinds of things that deeply impressed him uh, from like weird sort of rituals and people exhibiting seemingly psychic abilities and and also his father uh, i can't remember the term but his father was a prof- is like a like a not a professional but he was a he was a storyteller of his village and it was like a, in their culture it was like a very esteemed long like a, like a, a storytelling of a long tradition like part of a long tradition of of people that told stories and um there was a story that he told his his father told his uncle about Noah's flood and they they then they stayed up till you know early morning debating about it while young Gurdjieff watched them and years later he was deeply impressed because uh, a tablet was found like a Sumerian tablet and almost line by line it was identical to what Gurdjieff's father told about the story of Gilgamesh. Yeah, it was Gilgamesh. It was not Noah's flood, but basically the same story. Anyway, he was so impressed by this and it really blew his mind that, uh, you know, for about 3,000 years, the story stayed about the same. And it made him recognize that maybe a lot of stuff that we've dismissed as um, superstitious, as storytelling, as mythology, may have a kernel of something real in it. And so Gurdjieff and several friends of his, um, including women at the time, this group of friends were called the Seekers After Truth, and later Naranjo named his study group after the Gurdjieff group. But uh, they all went their separate ways to spend a couple years searching for uh, real sources of ancient wisdom. And uh, Gurdjieff was like, I think he was in um, Afghanistan or something, but he he came upon a priest, and uh, his friend got bit by a snake. And so they had to stay like a month at this priest's place, recovering from the poison. And uh, while he was there, the priest was like, hey, yeah, this, this Russian prince came by and offered me all this money to make a copy of my map. I've got this special map, family heirloom. And, uh, and I thought that was really weird, but I don't want to part with it because it's part important family heirloom. So I let him make a copy for an insane amount of money. And so Gurdjieff, being a sneaky, wily uh, miscreant, snuck into the basement and made a copy himself of the map. And as Gurdjieff says, the map was a map of Egypt, but as grassland and not as desert. And there were some monuments in this grassland, including the Sphinx. And so he calls this the map of pre-sand Egypt. And, uh, you know, that's interesting because um, anybody listening probably doesn't know that I uh, am a big Egypt fan of uh, just a little. Just a little. John, John Anthony West, who is the... Um, He's an Egyptologist who um, he, he was studying the work of Schwaller de Lubitz, which is like a, something called symbolist Egypt. It's like looking at Egypt through a symbolic lens and what the wisdom of ancient Egypt might have been instead of just slave owning megalomaniac pharaohs whipping people to make massive pyramids that they were buried in. All that's bullshit or not true. But um, anyway, so there's a line in, in, the, in the work of Schwaller that John was studying that said, 
the Sphinx enclosure. Sphinx is not built. It's, it's carved out of the bedrock. So the enclosure around it is the same age as the Sphinx. And it says the, the enclosure shows signs of intense water weathering. So this caught John's attention because it's in the middle of the Sahara fucking desert. And even in the time of the ancient Egyptians, it was often buried up to its neck in sand. So he brought a geologist to the Sphinx. Uh, geologists determined that the Sphinx had to be pretty fucking old, much older than the 2500 BC date given by most Egyptologists. And so if it in fact was um, water weathering, that w- uh, or if because it's water weathering, it must have been when there was water in Egypt, it would have been prior to the Ice Age, the younger Dryas. Like tens of thousands of years, right? Like 10,500 BC, so about mm-hmm. 13,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. So Gurdjieff became a tour guide in Egypt and studied <clears throat> um, in Egypt and around both uh, what, the ancient Memphis area, which is like Giza, Cairo area, and also uh, ancient Thebes, which is Luxor today, and uh, ran into this prince that had made the um, copy of the map. And from there was directed to what Gurdjieff called the Sarmuni Brotherhood. And they are supposedly either a real or mythical brotherhood of initiates dedicated to inner work, potentially somewhere in Afghanistan near the Amudrayu, Amudrayu, I'm not sure how you say it, but river, um, kind of near Uzbekistan. And that's supposedly where he learned most of the system that he taught later in the West and Europe and Russia. So he learned the Enneagram not as a description of personality types. He learned it as a symbol of cosmic laws. So there's the circle around the Enneagram, which represents the law of one. And you can think of that as all is one. Or you can think of it as any complete thing that you're looking at through the lens of the Enneagram. That's what it is. So like if we were to do an Enneagram of Nancy, the circle would represent the totality of, of Nancy in terms of her life, in terms of her personality, her essence, everything. Like everything that would encapsulate her as like a, you know, what a Ken, Ken Wilber might call a monad. I think that's what he calls it or a holon or something like that. Hmm. Would you just call me? Uh, uh, a he monad. called you very round. You're very, yeah. you're very round. Like I think he circle. just called me fat. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting fat. you say monad because in... There's a, I keep finding overlaps between Michael teachings and the Enneagram mm-hmm. and monad is mm. one of those things that they refer to in Michael teachings, which refers to the, the cycle of your life on earth is called a monad or one of the cycles on, of your lives is called a monad. Anyway. So I think, I think the actual word monad is uh, neoplatonic rather than Gurdjieffian or, okay. or no, can, I've, I'm, I'm tripping all kinds of stuff. Anyway. Whole on is the Ken Wilber word for any kind of whole thing. But monad comes from um, Neoplatonism is like the whole or like God or the divine or the, whole, you know, or the source or whatever. But okay. so then and it's got and it's got that dual aspect of it where it's the nothing and the everything. The right. zero. Yeah. Right. So anyway, then the second law on the Enneagram is represented by the triangle. It's the law of three. It's at each complete thing. Every every whole on. Uh, described by the circle, has three distinct and interrelated parts. And if you know anything in its totality, you're also knowing the three parts. Often, the way we habitually think of things and view things, we get caught up in dualities. We see good and bad, like and dislike, positive, negative, whatever. And we are (coughs) blind to the third element that connects them. And it's not just a balance of the two other forces. It's its own complete force. So like, for example, 
I think Cynthia Bourgeau in her book, The Holy Trinity Law of Three, talks about, uh, you know, you have the force of wind impacting the sail of a boat. And so that you get, you know, you have one force, which is the active force, which is the wind, the resistance force, or the force being acted upon is the sail of the boat as a whole. And then the third force there is the motion, which is like what's binding the two. So it's not a blend of boat and, and wind. It's its own thing. And yet it's a, um, it, it's what's bridging or creating relationship between these two forces. And then finally, you have the law of seven, which is represented by six points along the Enneagram, the hexad one, four, two, eight, five, seven, one. And you get that number by dividing uh, one divided into seven equals 0.1428571. To infinity. Yeah, into mm-hmm. infinity. And then you go along, I think it's like if you divide uh, two by seven, you get either... It's the same sequence, I believe, but it's just starting at a different number. Exactly. It goes yeah. all the way around. Yes. 285714. Exactly. Yeah. That is yeah. wild. Yeah. Because so, what you're doing is you're dividing the whole into seven parts. Yeah. Mathematically. Uh, so the math of the Enneagram is very interesting and the symbolism of it invites you to think in a different way than problem solving and arriving at linear conclusion. And so you're seeing how something can be divided up mathematically and yet like a, something abstract, like a process that still obeys certain laws. It, it, it's connected in a way that doesn't, from a kind of a linear point of view, doesn't seem like it could be. And so when you're looking at something from the point of view of the Enneagram, you're looking at how the whole has three elements, how those three elements are expressed through time and space. And so the lines connecting points within the Enneagram are kind of the, uh, the non-apparent relationships between events, between facets of a thing, between points that require a, a deeper kind of engagement or sensitivity to become aware of. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so it's not like, you know, when we think about the Enneagram personality, we think each point is a fixed character, right? Like, oh, I know what a four is. I know what a nine is. I know what a six is. But with the Enneagram person or Enneagram process, every point doesn't have a fixed character. And yet when you begin a process, you begin at point nine and you move clockwise around. And from that movement, there's a sense of quality that each point has and you can get a feel for that quality and if you if you approach it from the point of view of thinking about enneagram type and applying it to that quality along a process you're going to get yourself confused however i think that like as you work with it and approach and really study the enneagram process there does come to be a kind of essential connection between points along the enneagram and uh how they represent as type but that's like a whole thing mm. Last, last part of this Enneagram process, though, that's really important to understand is that whenever we engage in any kind of process, uh, especially one that demands a certain level of uh, complexity or is more difficult to pull off, like, like, a, like a process like washing the dishes is fairly straightforward and doesn't require that much intention. Mm-hmm. But to do something that requires changing your life or starting a relationship or something like that requires a lot more intention and focus and energy. And requires, you could say, a higher energy to come in. And so Gurdjieff described and recognized the, the way that no process occurs in a linear fashion. That every process is subject to variation in energy and intention and goes off course, so to speak. And that in it, for a process to reach its intended destination, 
It requires um, a renewal of intention and often a change in what the process, you, what you think the process you're undergoing actually is. And so it's that thing of like, I thought I was doing this, but I ended, ended up being, you know, this other thing. I thought I was just getting a new job, but it ended up being this entryway into a kind of vocation for myself, for example. I think you gave one example in the chat about getting into getting in shape, like somebody trying to get in shape and starting off with a, a certain motivation and that motivation gets them to work out for however, however many months and then they lose that motivation or it, it wanes and they have to rediscover another type of motivation. I'm not sure if I'm getting the example right, but maybe if you remember yeah, that's, it. That's one that uh, I believe Russ uses a lot. And, um, but I, I would like, I think a way that might be more relatable to people is learning the Enneagram as a process, right? Like, mm -hmm. so you, you find the Enneagram, everybody's journey is different, but I would roughly say that most people find the Enneagram and at point nine, and they're very impressed by it. And it's like a new thing. Like, oh, I can start seeing my family and friends in it. And that's like point one where you're like, oh, like I'm starting to see that there's some reality to this. And I'm starting to see that there's usefulness to it. And if you're, if you're at that place at point one where you're like, oh, I'm getting it. You can kind of imagine the, the potential. Like you don't have a clear sense of the potential in the Enneagram, but it's like, oh, there's, there's a lot here. And that would be like, being at point one and looking towards point seven. And so from that, from that information, you can also look to point four, which is like, what do I need to learn in the meantime to get to that kind of point seven end goal of actualizing the potential of the Enneagram? And so then you start, you like buy a book and you read about it, blah, blah, blah. Now you're at point two and you have a clear sense of what the Enneagram is. Like, so from point four, you at what point one, you're like, oh, I need to learn more. Looking towards point four, you buy a fucking book, you're going to point two. And now you're, you're really getting a sense of, oh, there's these centers and there's instincts. Oh, wow, I'm looking at point eight. And it's like my, my sense of where this could go changes even more. It's more in focus. And it's also a little bit deeper or more advanced than it was when I just first took a quiz or test or some friend told me about it. And things kind of plateau there, right? Like you're at point two and like you're learning and you're interested. And this is kind of what we were speaking to earlier where people will ask dumb questions sometimes if they get stuck at this place, because it just becomes fascinating and interesting, but it's not integrated into their life in a certain way. Mm -hmm. To take that next step, you have to, to, to learn the Enneagram more deeply. You have to integrate it into your life and not just keep it in your mental center. So that would be point three. And point three is a shock point. So it was point six and point nine. These are places where new energy and intention has to come in to vivify the process. So you know, you might go, um, you know, knowing your type, you might realize how asleep you are, how, um, wow, like I'm fucking trapped in my type. Like I keep doing these patterns and I can't get out of them or I'm, I just acquiesce to them as soon as I get reactive to something. And um, there's, there has to be a way that knowing the Enneagram starts to impact your sense of self. Does this make sense? Yeah. So you go through a kind of um, uh, a change in, in, how you relate to this thing. And it's a, you're actually starting a new process. It's like the point nine of a different octave, different Enneagram filling in point three. So there's two concurrent processes going on now. It's like, whoa, inner work or something like that. And then you're at point four, that information, that sense of knowing the Enneagram that you sort of anticipated at point one, you're sort of, you've got it a little bit more now. Like, oh, now there's the three centers and I don't just know them intellectually. I'm sensing myself, I'm feeling, I'm, I'm 
perceiving and I'm, I'm watching and observing my thoughts. There's a gap at the bottom of the Enneagram between 0.5 and, and 0.4. Gurdjieff called this space Harnalut, if I'm pronouncing it right. He made up a lot of words based on Armenian and Greek and other languages that he spoke in Russian. Uh, in, in part to kind of defamiliarize or to, to make something that would normally be that we might jump to conclusions about to make it still a little bit unfamiliar. And so this is the point in the process that is the furthest away from the beginning. And you can't go back now. Like you have to lose sight of the beginning. You can't regress. And yet you don't know where you're going to go. So you're like in complete void. And um, you have to navigate that. Like you could, you could just be stuck there and just be like, okay, I've got some rudimentary sense that there's this inner work thing and I need to, I need to know it. But at some point, if you're sticking with it, there's a real sense of, oh, shit. Like, I'm not just a type five or a type two or a type three. There's something else that I'm getting about what the Enneagram is and what it means about me as a being coming to know myself. And I would say that that's where a sense of uh, knowing that I'm essence and that my Enneagram type is an imitation of essence really kind of comes in. And so you're at 0.5 and you're looking to 0.7 where that when you were point one, you were looking to point seven as like a possibility or potential. Now you're much closer to it. Same thing with point eight. There's like those two that those two potentials and possibilities are informing your sense of perspective of yourself. And if that really is able to take hold in you, you cross into point six. So that's like, I'm not just working on myself. The sense of I that works changes. There's a new sense of like uh, like essence as my core, so to speak. Does that make sense? Is it mm-hmm. partly that the five to six, five would be somewhat the theoretical and six is coming into some kind of external action or something, maybe? Yeah, yeah. like like the, the five is the recognition and the six is the change actually happening. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that sense of um, like being like humiliated by your type. Yeah. Like, whoa, fuck. But there's another step that has to ha- occur from to go from that realization to making it a part of you. And that generally um, has something to do with surrender. Surrendering mm-hmm. that it's the me that thinks I'm working on myself and being receptive to something else coming in. And so then point five and, or excuse me, point seven and point eight are different stages of realization of that. And from there, you're back to point nine where you started, but at a new level. And so in a sense, that's the beginning of the discovery of what the Enneagram really is. And ideally, you're continuing and spiraling up. Exactly. And so the Enneagram, it, this, these, this process is going on on all levels and everything all the time. And everything is in entropy. And so the work against entropy is much more difficult than to go along with to acquiesce to entropy. So it's sort of like an ascending octave. And I keep using the word octave because the law of seven is based on the same uh, mathematics and, and proportion of the musical octave from Pythagoras. And so you could say when you tra- traverse an enneagram of process, you are traversing an octave, you're ascending an octave or descending an octave. And the octave kind of does a spiral too. Exactly. And yeah. Just the way that I said that at point three, when you complete that shock, that you begin another Enneagram, you begin another octave. It's the, 
it's the 0.9 of a different, a, a second Enneagram above it, so to speak. 0.6 is the same thing where you're initiating uh, a new octave, like a third octave, and that 0.9 fills in the 0.3 of the second octave and fills in the 0.6 of the first octave. That makes any sense. You have three simultaneous Enneagrams like stacked on each other like pancake. Yeah. Hmm. I might need visuals for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, six seems like a six seems like a it's like a bloodletting. You know, there's a sacrifice right there. It's like a do you know what I mean? There's like something's that's a I mean, the particular kind of well, it's kind of like you said, you know, five is sort of a realization of something and you're past that gap and there's no going back. And six is a surrender, right? So it's kind of a yeah. self-sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And there's a there's something about six. I've written about it somewhere at some point and I had the words for it. But there's something about six that is a bloodletting, if that makes sense. It's a slicing open, a warrior. I mean, it's like the soldier going into battle will willfully, you know, knowing that there's a good chance they're gonna get killed. Well, you know, all right, so we're this we're recording this on the twenty second of December. And we've been talking a lot about Christians and, um, you know, if you want to see the 0.6, uh, part of the process of Jesus, it's where he surrenders on the cross, right? Like there's that sense of it is accomplished. And it's like it, that's echoed in the, uh, the death of Osiris in Egypt, but it's this, you have to be surrender to something higher than yourself. And it's not like, how we kind of conceptualize it of like, all right, now just say, Jesus, take the wheel and, or whatever. But it's like mm. the ego has to seriously recognize its helplessness, its inability to do as Gurdjieff would say. And it's, uh, it's inability to help itself. And also that all our inner work is done by the ego. So even the thing that we think is free of ego is full of ego. And like, we have to like despair right. at that. It's the incapacity, the incapacity of the personality is fully realized. Exactly. And your helplessness in in the face of it. And so when you really become helpless from that point of view, then there is a surrender that can happen because there's, there's been a dark night of the soul. There's been a, a, a loss of faith in the thing that we're unconsciously giving our faith to over and over. So, you know, it's this interesting thing of sacrifice and faith that comes in at six that relates to the type six. Yeah. Exactly. You know, so Gurdjieff actually, you know, all this stuff about ancient Egypt and, and, you know, Gurdjieff was obviously influenced by Sufism, especially uh, the Northern Sufis, I think. And J.G. Bennett, his, one of his students, uh, did a lot of really good research on the influences of Gurdjieff, uh, in particular, like the Khwajagan, the Masters of Wisdom, and the uh, Naqshbandi. But I don't, like, some people say the Enneagram is Sufi. I really don't think so. There's a woman named Bakhtir, and I really have not appreciated her work, and I don't feel like her work is, I think there's something to it, but it's, she's trying to say the Enneagram is Sufi, and I, I don't think it is at all. But um, I'll shut the fuck up for a second. Is, is this still interesting? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Any, any questions before I go further into Gurdjieff? Um, on, on that going around the circle thing, you're kind of pinging around, but the basic premise is that you're going, starting at nine and you're going one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, right? You're going in a circle, but mm-hmm. it at, but at, but were you kind of meaning that, you know, at point, let's say two, 
you're kind of you're you you can look at or or have some vision toward type eight and type four because of yes. the connecting lines. Okay. Exactly. So you yeah, like having a kind of a vision or a sense of possibility. Mm-hmm. And speaking of um thinking and ways of thinking, that quality of being able to reach towards a vision without getting it too concrete mm. is actually a real capacity, if that makes any sense. Right. Yeah. Because it's like like so I've been trying to write an article about like the the mental center and and what it is and um I'm interested in like ways of thinking that are like using the mind in a way that's like in reach and yet something that we don't normally think to think about and and so we were talking about vision versus intelligence earlier and like that's a real capacity for vision is that that sense of being able to put your intention in a particular direction and, and sort of not vision, not like visualize, but like envision a possibility and set it before you. So yeah, Gurdjieff called his work esoteric Christianity. And I grew up Catholic, as I've said before. And I find that Gurdjieff's system, I think it is much more Christian, truthfully, than, than it is Sufi or anything like that. It's very Egyptian, but it's Christianity is just remedial Egyptian mysteries, basically. And it's helped me connect to the meaning of that tradition. And, um, you know, Gurdjieff was Eastern Orthodox. It's re- the, he, that's how he grew up. So there's something in there too. But um, part of the uh, difficulty with a lot of modern Christianity is that it lacks practice. You know, there's a sense of contemplation and things like this, but that's usually reserved for special people. But uh, the sense of how to work and how to observe yourself and to recognize that you are mechanical and that your emotions, excuse me, are mechanical, meaning just automatic, and that your behaviors are automatic and that your thoughts are automatic. And there's nothing truly yours, that all the stuff we get narcissistic about and we get very prideful about is not yours. And our Enneagram type shows us how mechanical we are. And so being able to take that in and being able to see what our real state of like real need is helps us to actually undertake the kind of suffering that Jesus is a model of. You know, Gurdjieff calls it conscious suffering versus mechanical suffering. And most of the time, most of our suffering is mechanical. But to consciously suffer is to confront our real state and our real situation. So even when we're feeling all the feels, that's mechanical. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. All the feels, hashtag <laughs> mechanical. If we're like very prideful of our eightish strength and, you know, ass kicking or mm-hmm. our fourish hashtag deep feels or <laughs> our two-ish compassion or our three-ish accomplishment or seven-ish fun or our five-ish wisdom, it's mechanical. And you can still appreciate it, but don't take it as yours. And that starts to shift the sense of, you know, what, what this, what it means to actually know the Enneagram. Cause we didn't choose our type. We didn't choose our bodies. We didn't choose our instincts. We didn't choose all these things. And, but yet they're tools we can work with consciously. And so, you know, Gurdjieff, one of the, one of the things that connects the modern Enneagram with the Gurdjieff um, is the division between essence and personality. And, 
and the th- also the three centers. And, and the way they're related is that normally we take ourselves to be the content of our centers, meaning our thoughts, our feelings, and our behaviors from the, the mind, heart, and the body. But those are just functions. They're not really us. And the personality is just the management system or the operation of those centers around the instincts, basically. And so he makes a distinction between personality, which is everything he says that we acquire in life that was, is given to us automatically. And hap- it arises from a complex interaction between ourselves and our environment early in life. And um, essence, which most people think they know what essence is, and they really don't. And yet everybody's had experience of essence. So a lot of times when people are doing spiritual work, they think that they're doing some kind of higher something or other, but they're really just regulating and working on the personality, which is fine and great, and you need a personality. But the personality is like is like a, a platform, is like a support for essence. But essence is something very different than personality. So what I mean is like, um, Gurdjieff said that essence is what you're born with. And it's how you come into the world. And when we say being, pre- when we talk about being present, the thing in us that can be present or not is essence. And so if we have a difficult time being present, we all do, it shows us how undeveloped essence is. But essence is not like the higher self or some kind of better version of your personality. It's not like, oh man, if I was just essence, I would be loving all the time and I'd be really happy. All that's personality. Anything about results and like cause and effect is personality. Essence is like what is, it's being, right? And so like, all we, essence has qualities. It's not formless. Like every type is, is organized around a quality of essence. So like, for example, beginning with eight, like what do we all know and recognize about eights when they're healthy or unhealthy is that they're powerful. And so from the point of view of personality, power is being able to assert my will over my circumstances environment. From the point of view of essence, power is like when you're very present, no matter what type you are, when you're very present and you're really here, everything feels like really here. It's like got a potency. It's got a power of vividness and immediacy. And so those, that's like, that's like the difference. Like in nine, nines tend to like, I, I, I call the essence quality of nine harmony and nine, the personality and all of us tends to think of harmony as just the lack of conflict or a lack of, a lack of smoothness. And so I need to be smooth and smooth things out. Uh, but harmony is like when you're present, Oh, and also nine, the, the, the fault default of the, of harmony is like blurring distinctions. Like, Oh, it's not really, things don't really have boundaries, you know, but when you're really present, like, and you're here, just like that, from that point, that eight point of view of power of, of essential power, like harmony is like, everything is really here and it's doing everything's resonating like a symphony that's harmonizing together. Exactly. Including myself. I'm a part of this too. And I'm not deleting myself to like make sure the harmony stays happening. The harmony just is. And so you can go around the whole Enneagram like that. And um, again, Gurdjieff didn't teach this stuff, but the, I'm trying to connect it to actual the Enneagram personality. He taught about essence versus personality as a distinction that's really important to keep in mind and not confuse the two. There was a time when you did a, a I don't think it was a workshop, but maybe a talk with the Shift Network mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. Uh, that really was a click for me in terms of conceptualizing the Enneagram as a whole. I mean, because we all know all these different parts of it, tri-type and instincts. And, uh, but when you 
talked about essence qualities and personality being a management system for instincts, all of a sudden I saw the whole thing fit together. Like mm-hmm. this is how a person functions. And I've always struggled with trying to translate this thing that I'm so obsessed about <laughs> with people who ask me about it. And when I say, oh, I'm into the Enneagram, which means now I have to lecture about what the Enneagram is. So trying to find very succinct, clear, simple ways to explain what it is in a way that will quickly land with people. And I found that essence qualities uh, coupled with instincts was a way to really get people a very clear picture. People trying to describe each type is kind of challenging, but Mm-hmm. describing essence qualities there's something very simple and um intuitive about it that people can immediately get and then throwing instincts in there it doesn't seem that hard it, it actually seems not too complicated versus trying to explain like each personality type it, it was a big deal for me in terms of oh this is how this is how a human being functions this is how you connect this stuff to other spiritual modalities that people might be aware of people have heard of essence before so um they can oh this is this is kind of a a way to to do inner work that people can kind of already understand like i totally agree with you but can you tell me more about you know what about essence and well okay so when when let's say i'm just hanging out at a bar and and some girls like asking me what i'm enneagram comes up and is like what is that and so before that i i try to like well it's it's a system for inner work that describes nine different personality types and i sort of describe some personality types but i was having a difficult time trying to like give an overview that helps someone understand how deep the enneagram was without like making it sound like myers-briggs or something that they could Mm -hmm. just go online and take a test about so i found that essence was one at the same time simple simpler to describe but also really deep because how do you you know, something like power or truth, those are very big words that have so much depth and meaning. And to say that um, someone, you come into this world organized around seeking truth, like your personality is organized around forming replacements for what that sense is. Yeah. So explaining that to someone is a very powerful thing. Right. To see that, um, one, you were born this way, you have this essential quality that you're always looking for in every moment and to see that your instinctual reactions and your emotional life is organized around how well you think you're getting this. And it's a very simple thing to say, but it's also very deep and it really opens up how um, powerful the Enneagram can be and how, how like tied into your own core function as a human being. And um, so for me, it was like, this is an immediate way that I can communicate how fucking big of a deal this thing is without like talking about, Oh, let me go online and take a test, you know, like, um, and this and that, but people can get the depth of the Enneagram, um, in a very quick way. Right. So the personality is a mock-up of the essence. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. You can have some much deeper conversations from the get-go when you start talking about essence versus personality types. I, I agree because I, you know, everybody, everybody has all the essence qualities in them, and we all have touched on it when the personality relaxes for a second. Mm-hmm. But you know, to your point, David, the personality is trying to do or make essence happen. Like it's trying to, trying to, like mm-hmm. as a four, like I'm trying to be deep instead of just 
being in depth. Yeah. The depth uh, is already there. Depth is already there. And I just got to tune my, I got to be sensitive enough to uh, release my automatic patterns and just, grasping. Yeah. All the grasping for it. Exactly. And just allow myself to be in it. And it sounds airy fairy at first, but it's a very real, easily provable, demonstrable experience. It can't, it's not like scientifically provable, I guess, but it's like you can feel it immediately. And it's not just putting yourself in a better feeling state because there's a difference between how you feel and an essence quality. Like you can feel miserable or happy, but being in touch with essence is a different thing. As I said, it's like we're working on distinguishing essence and personality. And there's no better map of personality, nor how personality tries to get at essence and fails than the Enneagram. Yeah, I didn't have much to say on this one. I was just enjoying soaking up the information. Does uh, cool. narrative do any uh, like focus on Gurdjieff? He is mentioned briefly, but really none of that was brought in. Like in a, a brief kind of mention of essence, but it's really focused on the personality and what the personality does. So I really appreciate kind of getting to know essence and what that means because there's a lot more work to be done around essence and um, kind of the the way that uh, the instincts control the personality versus just the personality being like the main shtick. So the another carryover from the Enneagram of person or between Enneagram personality and Gurdjieff work is um, the wrong the that the type or the personality is the personality is based on the wrong work of the centers of intelligence, the body, the heart, and the mind. Mm-hmm. Within the body, uh, there's the body center, which Gurdjieff called the moving center. But then there's also the sex center, which is our, our reproductive system. And there's the instinctive center. And he said the instinctive... And those are all in what we would call the gut, though. Yeah, those three. Yeah, they make up the gut. And yeah. um, the instinctive center, he didn't talk about the instincts. That Chazo talked about instincts explicitly, but talks about the instinctive center and he said it was divided into three sections that each section had a positive and negative polarity which sounds like the instincts to me and you know he talked about how people would be basically enslaved by he didn't say it this way but self-sexual and social stuff but that we those centers are operating the wrong way so like i'll take myself as an example as a four i'm an emotional type and I, as a four, I draw the head center into the emotional center and I think about my feelings and I enhance my feeling states with my thoughts. So I'm using a second center to reinforce my identification with the first center. The whole Gurdjieff work is, is working against identification. So identification is like collapsing an association or it's you know, blending things that, that aren't appropriate. So like I'm an emotional type. I'm therefore identified with my feelings and I need to reinforce that identification, make it stronger. So I think about it and then I'm out of touch with the body center, but what body center uh, I am habitually using from the lens of my type becomes a kind of emotional aggression that's introverted. And so it makes the four very emotionally stormy and, and toxic inside. And we all have our own version of this. So Gurdjieff said that we feel with our instincts, meaning we have emotional reactions to our instinct, and that we think with our feelings, meaning our thoughts are mostly ideologies and fixations that sort of appease or satisfy the agenda of our emotion. So we either think ways that make, make things make sense to our feelings, 
or that make us feel better or that give us somewhere to blame. You know, the thinking center is not free to be its own center. It's enslaved by the agenda of the emotions, which are reacting to the, to the um, instincts. So our work then becomes allowing each center to do its own work. And the way that we do that is we use sensation and feeling and perceiving that we're actually present to those things because in the, in the trance of our type, we're usually dissociated from all those. And so ta- speaking of essence and personality, part of what makes essence important is that it gives us a real felt sense of our existence. So most of the time, we all feel a little bit empty and we feel a little bit like we don't really exist and we have to do stuff to make ourselves feel like we exist. If we're an eight, we got to push. If we're a three, we got to achieve. If we're a four, we got to dwell on our feelings. Uh, if we're a nine, we got to smooth things out. And that activity makes us feel like we exist. But if we just stop doing that activity, there's a, there's a kind of an emptiness that starts to arise and it, and it feels like meaninglessness. Gurdjieff talked about everything, everything as material, even uh, finer materials like essence. So he talked about essence in terms of materiality too. And that essence is like a substance. And when you're present, it's like you're collecting a substance within yourself. It's like you can feel it like you're like right now, wherever you're sitting or doing, if you just sense your body physically sense, there's a way that you can kind of pull your attention closer into your, you could say atmosphere, closer to your body. But there's a, there, there's, a, there's a sensation of collecting yourself, of being more in the place that you are. And, you know, depending on a type, you might have a tendency to push that energy out or force it or get murky around it or whatever. But if we just like let our mind calm for a sec and like get out of our reactions and we just like let ourselves collect ourselves, it's like collecting your energy. There's this sense of, even if it's very slight, like, oh, I'm here. And so the practice for the Gurdjieff work for the fourth way is to be present. And the way that you can be present or not is to sense your body, to feel rather than just be attached to your emotions, like to actually just allow your heart to be there, even if you're feeling nothing. And to be really in like observing and perceiving from your mind and not just thinking, but you're you're, there's spaciousness where you're able to observe your thoughts and you're able to perceive what in your mind is not just thought. And so those centers working to balance those together helps us to see where our type is biased in favor of one of those centers. And so how do we allocate the appropriate energy for all three centers and become more of a, a, a full human being instead of a partial human being? I watch the cats, watch the mice. Till both legs fell asleep. I'm not really there. Fuck you, gonna tell me? Hiding out of it. Admittedly, it's own form of cowardice. But yo, at six, Afro pick with the black power fist. Corduroys in the turtleneck. I could've took your unnecessary. Thirteen with the Malcolm X hat. Come on, man.